So, uh, hello and welcome to this episode of the Culture and Inequality podcast, uh, the season two uh, of the Culture and Inequality podcast, where um, we're broadening out the range of, of topics that we've been thinking about in the context of culture and inequality. My name is David Bryan. Uh, I'm the host of this episode, which is going to be thinking about social mobility. And in order to do so, I'm joined by two experts on this, um, Marn Toft and Sam Friedman. Um, so maybe, uh, Marn, you'd like to introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Uh, my name is uh, Marn Toft. I am a um, postdoctoral researcher at the University of Oslo, and I'm very happy to be invited to this podcast. Thank you. And Sam? Hi, everyone. Yeah, my name is Sam Friedman, Associate Professor in Sociology at the London School of Economics. You've both written um, about social mobility in a variety of, of different ways. Um, and the kind of quite boring starting point um, for the discussion, which uh, I promise people will get interested in very quickly, is a question of like, why should we care about social mobility? Um, why is this kind of like an interesting um, point? And I wonder, Sam, if you could just like kind of sketch out for a couple of minutes what social mobility is and, and why we should care about it. Yeah, I suppose in a very basic sense, social mobility um, helps us understand the ways in which our starting points in life uh, connect to our destinations in life. Um, and we can measure that in various ways. Economists uh, tend to think about it in relation to um, economics, obviously. So what your parents earn and then comparing that to what you yourself go on to earn. In sociology, we, we tend to use slightly different tools. And I suppose the dominant way is, is, is through occupation. Um, so looking at what your parents did for a living and then comparing that to what you yourself uh, do for a living. Um, and measuring um the kind of distance traveled i suppose um often in um in terms of occupation in a, in a set of kind of uh socioeconomic or class groupings um and um and i suppose you know in a basic sense the the aim in a way is to look at the ways in which people's uh outcomes or life chances are structured by those uh those starting points you set up perfectly uh, the surprise question for, for the week, <laughs> which um, kind of concludes our introduction. And maybe I'll throw this one uh, to you, Marn, first. So um, our surprise question for the week is, what was the uh, occupation of the main wage earner in your household when you were 14 years old, Marn? Hmm. Um, so I, I come from a family of, of teachers, so all four grandparents and my parents are teachers. Now my sister is a teacher. Although my dad worked as, um, he has a small, um, he, he retrained into, into um, IT in the 80s. So he was, he was working within IT, but, uh, but I'm, a, I'm a teacher's daughter. Some uh, microclass reproduction and a bit of uh, upward social mobility there as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, same question to you, Sam. What, what's your answer to the great social mobility question? So uh, out and out microclass reproduction in my case. So my dad, um, who was the main income earner when I was 14, um, was, a, 
was an academic, was a management scholar. Um, my mum was a social worker. So I asked that um, kind of slightly flippantly because it actually gives us some clues to some of the big problems about social mobility, um, particularly how to measure it when you don't have really good data about people's uh, either income or their class origins. And one of the things that's been going on in, um, I suppose, kind of public policy in the UK, at least, has been this question of, well, how do we um, kind of think about, say, the class of um, our workforce or the class of people that we're serving, whether it's like as an audience or clients or or something like that. And that, you know, sort of strangely intrusive, but also quite, you know, kind of bland and descriptive question about the main wage earner when you were growing up has come to be um, the route into understanding social class um, in some ways. But also, and, and again, you know, it, it, it's great that you've mentioned um, the broader kind of um, familial occupational settings um, in both of your answers, because actually it tells us that, you know, social class isn't just about, say, occupations or income, but there are much broader um, cultural and contextual stories. And that's really what the three papers that we're going to be considering um, on this episode do. You know, they kind of show us both, you know, the importance of things like um, familial class origin. Um, They tell us things about the need to think, um, you know, about the uh, impacts or the implications of things like social class in terms of the occupations or professions that people end up in. And we've got a paper that's maybe not critical, but gives us a kind of a slightly different or alternative look at social mobility. Three papers we're looking at are uh, one from American Sociological Review by Laura Rivera called Hiring as Cultural Matching, the Case of Elite Professional Service Firms. Uh, We're also looking at uh, Maria Adamson and Mariana Johnson's uh, writing class in and out constructions of class in elite businesswomen's autobiographies, which was published in the journal Sociology. And then a paper that was written uh, by Marn and Sam um, called Family Wealth and the Class Ceiling, the Propulsive Power of the Bank of Mum and Dad, which is also from the journal Sociology. Um, I wonder, Marn, if, if you'd like to just say a couple of words about your paper, maybe, um, you know, the kind of the headline for your, your finding about um, the Bank of Mum and Dad. Yeah, so um, so this paper really um, tries to pick up on the recent work that Sam has conducted together with with Daniel Lorison that shows or that centers on not only how mobility is about how people enter elite occupations, but how they manage to go ahead or the trajectories after uh, occupational entry, and particularly the 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 disadvantage, the economic disadvantage that the upwardly mobile um, phase. And we tried to pick up on that uh, idea and, and study study Norway. And we tried to make two contributions in a sense. We tried to uh, look systematically at what, um, uh, how that pay gap is expressed among the high earners and the low earners. And we tried to sort of dig into how this, um, the bank of mom and dad and, and the, 
the centrality of parental wealth, how much that is driving income gaps in different fields. And we find very much that parental wealth is indeed a very a very important driver of uh, of explaining or understanding the economic disadvantage that that working class um, upwardly mobile people are facing also in in our way. Perfect. That, that's a really good overview um, and sets up actually lots of different uh, talking points that we'll come on to um, slightly later in the episode. Um, I wonder, Sam, if you could do the same for uh, Lauren Rivera's paper, which um, I, I guess is quite, in sociological uh, circles, quite kind of famous now. Yeah, I mean, it's a classic um, already, I think. And I think it basically does what good sociology should do. It takes an idea or a belief that's routinely deployed in everyday life here the idea that hiring managers basically appoint people in their own image and specifically here in their own cultural image and properly interrogates this and it does so via uh, 120 interviews with employers in elite professional service firms and it it basically confirms this process what Rivera neatly calls cultural matching uh, and shows that it happens routinely in these firms and is actually the most sort of common mechanism employers use to assess interviewees, despite perhaps what they uh, publicly say about sorting on skills or talent or human capital. Um, but I think the paper is most impressing, impressive actually at getting at how this cultural matching takes place in hiring interviews. Um, and here it identifies three kind of overlapping processes. First, that cultural matching is actually kind of formally smuggled in to formal evaluation processes by this term cultural fit, which I'm sure most readers, sorry, listeners would have heard in some shape or form, and that employers kind of use routinely to justify their decisions. Secondly, through what Laura Rivera calls a looking glass version of merit, you are basically hiring yourself, one of her respondents tells her in an interview, uh, and this is kind of whereby evaluators are misrecognizing as merit certain candidates' uh, experiences or interests because they themselves share and value those experiences. So involvement in certain extracurricular activities or sport. And finally, in terms of what happens in interactions when people realize that they share cultural tastes and styles, how this generates a kind of powerful affective energy uh, glue, if you will, that then motivates uh, hiring managers to advocate for certain individuals in hiring decisions. Perfect. I'll just give a, a quick overview of our final paper now, the um, writing class in and out paper. And I, I wanted to, to highlight this paper for, for two reasons. I think the first is because it's explicitly about gender when we're thinking about social mobility. And this is quite uh, kind of contested territory. And, and maybe later on, we'll talk about the kind of history of social mobility studies. And indeed, you, you know, that um, opening question I, I asked, I, I was trying to be careful not to say, what was your father's income or your father's job? when you were 14, but um, certainly in previous uh, iterations of social mobility research, it would have been quite straightforward to think about, you know, the man as the head of the household. And to an extent, even where uh, we've seen the kind of broadening out of social mobility research, there has still been, I think, a focus on the kind of 
the male experience. And in the British context, there are lots of kind of tropes about working class lads done good. And indeed, you, you can see this in, in other social contexts, particularly um, in, in the US uh, context as well. And I, I mean, I, we might talk about Norway uh, as, a, as an interesting kind of comparison case, you know, uh, a very different um, sort of, of social system. Maybe we'll do that a little bit later. For now, what's going on with writing class in and out is Adamson and uh, Johansson took these uh, four autobiographies of, of kind of reasonably famous, um, what we think of as kind of like uh, elite businesswomen, and they read them as a way of understanding both narratives of uh, what it's like to be an elite um, in the context of, of business, but also they read them to think about what class means, how class is constructed, written about, you know, kind of understood. And they come up actually with some, some fascinating stuff, particularly around differences in the experience of the socially mobile, which is two of the autobiographies, versus those with uh, middle class origins, which is the other two. But also they are really kind of attentive to the way gender shapes the narration and indeed i guess the experience of social mobility and i think that's really really important because um, as i've mentioned it's something that is often you know not foregrounded um, in some of the social mobility research so our general question this week is what is social mobility and why does this matter for cultural inequality and we've heard about the three papers that are our kind of jumping off points our sort of uh, starting point and um, I think it might be interesting to to start with with you Marm again actually because um, I think your paper is a really useful way of saying look you know we've got a vision of Norway as uh, and you can correct me here as a kind of like quite egalitarian society you know quite a fair sort of society one where you know Maybe your parents' uh, occupation or your parents' wealth shouldn't really stop you rising to the top um, if, to kind of coin a cliche, you work hard and you're talented, uh, which is, you know, the, the kind of classic narrative of, um, you know, misconceptions of, of social mobility. But what you do in the paper um, is you say, actually, look, there, there are some important differences in both, you know, kind of where people end up based on social class, even if they're doing quite well, and also um, in things like their pay. So to coalesce this into a, a question, it'd be useful to hear, I guess, about the kind of Norwegian context. I was struck reading the paper that like Norway has these unbelievable data sets about people's income, which would be really difficult to do actually in, in, in the US or, or in the UK. And also that, you know, um, slightly kind of um, critical point you make in the paper that Norway is not really as equal as we think it is. Yeah, thank you, Dave. I think um, I think one of the, I think very often the, the very fixed way of studying social mobility uh, in sociology brings with it some clear perspectives on the primacy of the labor market and the primacy of occupations. And I think to some extent, I mean, obviously, there's lots of really good reasons for, for doing that. But I do think that uh, one important um, resource that is or asset that is that is 
may be um, neglected in that perspective is the centrality of wealth uh, and the increasing centrality of wealth. Uh, so I do think that when we look at um, labor market earnings, for instance, we skew our questions towards the compressed income distribution that we have in the Nordic societies and the Scandinavian societies, for instance, because we have strong labor unions um, and we have collective wage bargaining and we have these institutional um, features that generate a relative egalitarian context in comparison to many other countries. But we don't really have very strong regulation of, of capital or wealth. And, and this is increasingly so, actually. We in 2014, we no longer have uh, taxation on, on inheritance and gifting, for instance, which has allowed, and we also have a very deregulated credit and housing market, which has allowed for wealth inequalities to become pretty profound and a lot larger than many other countries. And I think when thinking about mobility and thinking about life chances, if we only look at labor market returns and occupational dynamics, we can lose sight of social change that is very important and very forceful in, in chal challenge, uh, in, in um, uh, impacting also labor market outcomes. And I think that um, one of the things that maybe Sam and I contribute with with this paper is to try to, to really pinpoint how parental wealth fosters a set of opportunities and, a, and some specific leeway and safety net that uh, we don't really uh, get a hold at if we don't measure wealth and if we don't include wealth in the types of, um, in, in, in understanding opportunity structures. And I think this is, this. I think that parental wealth is probably important in many other countries. There are studies from the U.S., for instance, that also shows this. The U.S. also has very, uh, lots of wealth inequalities. But I think that the Scandinavian context is a very interesting case in point to study these processes uh, because it adds to kind of challenge our, our vision or understanding of, of the Nordic or Scandinavian societies as, as uh, very, very equal. And with respect to the distribution of wealth, they're absolutely not. I mean, it, it's really interesting, the wealth stuff, because I think it answers a question of, of mechanisms, you, you know, the, Social mobility research, I think, has been brilliant at kind of showing us here are the patterns across a range of different uh, societies around the world of sort of who ends up where, you know, who gets what in terms of both the income and the occupational um, distribution. But it's more contested and maybe there are more debates about what the mechanisms are for explaining these patterns. And indeed, it's, it's where the debates tend to get um, at their most, um, what would be a polite way of putting it, you know, at their most intense uh, would be around mechanisms. Although actually there are fairly intense debates about the nature and extent of, of particular forms of um, income or occupational social mobility as well. And foregrounding wealth by saying, you know, look, that wealth is one of the key ways that um, we can start to explain um, why even as you say in you know seemingly kind of equal societies we still have these unequal outcomes it points us I think to um, a set of discussions that are about so what else is going on and one of the things that was most interesting in the other two papers was and this you know is, is a very cultural inequality point 
was the um, kind of softer, um, subtler, more kind of difficult to pin down cultural um, elements. And one thing I was struck in the writing class in an out paper was the way that wealth was narrated by the two uh, middle class autobiographies. And, and they did this in two ways. Um, on the one hand, there was um, a, an idea about kind of ordinariness that um, came through the two middle class narratives. Um, I, I picked out a quote that I really liked that um, reminded me actually of something Sam and I had been working on um, in another paper um, where um, one of the um, women writing in the autobiography had said, well, look, boarding school, you know, it makes my early life sound like all ponies and privilege. But, you know, before I went there, I'd had quite a normal upbringing. Um, and by all accounts, this individual's autobiography was full of, you know, hard graft, hard work, you know, private school. I still had to, you know, struggle for everything, you know, these kind of things. And so there's a, a sort of a claim to orderliness in the sense of, um, you know, kind of working hard and um, you know, still having to to struggle, but also at the same time, um, there's a, a gendered element and a gendered aspect to this, where all four of the women, kind of irrespective of class background, um, even when they've achieved you know great uh, wealth, are you know still um, in a predominantly male environment. You know, elite business is extremely kind of you know, male in terms of numbers of men and also, you know, masculine in, in terms of culture. And it's interesting how these two elements come together to kind of obscure things like the importance of wealth, both wealth in terms of jobs they end up in, but also for the middle class respondents, wealth when they're growing up and, and you know, the kind of, um, I suppose, privileges that flow from that. The even kind of, you know, sort of subtler version of this is in the Rivera paper where because she focuses on um, understanding the kind of cultural cues and the cultural match, um, she doesn't do as much in saying what the relationship is between, say, wealth and forms of, of cultural engagement. It's certainly there in, in the paper, but it comes out more in, in the book she wrote, uh, which is it's called pedigree maybe sam you, you might be able to remind me on that one and it's interesting again that you know rivera shows us the kind of cultural mechanisms almost by which wealth um what we might think of as kind of economic resources or economic capital is translated into cultural resources cultural capital and then pays off in professional positions and i'm interested sam if you could tease out that sense of kind of the mechanisms by which we move from wealth to culture and maybe back to wealth in Rivera's paper. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, and this takes us back to some extent to this initial question you asked me about what is social mobility and, and how do we conceptualize it? And I think, you know, one of the things that probably connects Marne and I is that while we often use, um, variables like occupation, um, we're both probably, um, influenced more by the work of Pierre Bourdieu in terms of thinking about um, both class origins and class destinations more in terms of um, inherited and then accumulated forms of economic and cultural capital. Um, and I think what you see very clearly in the Rivera paper is 
kind of how this inherited cultural capital can then, as you mentioned, Dave, be converted into um, um, advantage in the labour market that then, of course, is a gateway to um, very significant, in the case of these elite professional service firms, um, forms of, 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 of uh, income and wealth. Um, I think one of the things that, um, that I particularly liked found interesting about the way that she conceptualized this is through this kind of notion of um of an affective process you know this is where i think you get the real strength of her qualitative lens so she's sort of explaining how these forms of um inherited cultural capital actually play out in this important setting um that sharing forms of of culture and she she conceptualizes it less in the paper as this i suppose what we would think of as kind of legitimate forms of culture but i think you can read that through her work and it's certainly in pedigree but that that tends to manifest interaction in this sort of affective spark right that people feel very strongly and that this affective power then often drives them as hiring managers um, to kind of fight for a particular candidate during a, a wash-up session or, or such like, and I think um, I think that's one of the really really important elements of 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 of, of how she kind of connects this uh, um, idea of, of of culture to then uh, some sort of economic reward in the labour market. That's a, that's a really nice overview, and and I think um, to an extent we've got. Um, Quite a nice with, with the three papers, a, a nice overview of um, one part, like definitely not all, but you know, one part of the kind of state of the art um, on studies of, of social mobility and, and thinking about social mobility from from a variety of different um, traditions um, and a variety of different um, methods and, and data sets as well. And, and I wonder, Marn, you, you know, to kind of broaden it out slightly away from from the um, three specific papers themselves. Um, where do you think the field is? What, what do you think is, is kind of, you know, um, is going well with studies of social mobility that are thinking about cultural inequality? Um, I'm not asking you to, like, you know, diss your colleagues or anything, but, <laughs> you know, what, what do you think would be, you know, kind of interested in, in terms of what might come next or where, um, you know, sort of interesting developments are likely to be? I think I think definitely that we've seen uh, within the the field of of, of class analysis and, and social mobility a very specific cultural turn that has shaped um, the discipline and the the field profoundly and, and I think has very un, in, enriched our understanding of how um, reproduction comes about and how and in, and in particularly how. Um, classes lived and experienced and so on. And I do think that both Rivera and Adamson and, and Johansson's articles uh, that we read today really help underscore and, and, and further unpack both how lifestyles um, and how we sort of present ourselves have important implications for, for both sort of accessing elite segments in the labor market or help sort of justify and legitimize the privileges that one's one enjoys at the top. And I think that more can also be done in, in this. We're not, we're not, we're not um, 
exhausted the opportunities within within this cultural turn, I think. And and I think there is potential for sort of expanding the the comparative lead as it was uh, developed by Michel Lamont in in unpacking further how different national repertoires help sort of shape the specific ways that that such cultural processes are are manifested and played out differently across contexts. So so I think that's one one angle. And I think perhaps uh, like I, I I mentioned before that this comparative angle is is equally sort of important for widening the notion of how ma- the material side of of uh, of mobility and, and in particular maybe the the role of the emergent role of wealth for understanding contemporary life chances and and here I think really there is room for mobility scholars and, and class analysis to to think more systematically about the role of wealth and 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 how it can operate more or less independently from labor market dyma- dynamics, in part because it's um, it's a product of different ways of organizing housing markets and so on. And and I think cross-country comparisons would be interesting as wealth inequalities in different countries are, like mentioned before, so puzzlingly different from common ways of, of classifying national patterns of inequality. So in particular, talking from the perspective of Norway, uh, I think that this seems very um, important to recognize. So a comparative, comparative take on 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 bringing both the the symbolic, uh, cultural as well as the material side to to the mobility process would be would be a way to move forward. I think. Yeah, that'll be a great book. Um, <laughs> give me a whole load of ideas there, and hopefully to our our listeners as well. What, what about you, Sam? Um, what, what what do you think um, you know might be some interesting uh, lines of of, of uh, kind of thought? I, I was particularly struck by, um, for example, your work with Aaron Reeves, which has used, I guess, what we'd call a kind of a big data approach to think about uh, culture and social mobility. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's just so many interesting angles uh, around this area. Um, just to sort of perhaps just tease out a few here. I mean, I think it's interesting. Man didn't didn't mention it, but but one of the interesting things that comes out of that paper um, that her and I um, wrote is 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 the particular role that parental wealth plays in cultural occupations, uh, and I think that might be of interest to some of the listeners here um, that we find that it's uh, particularly powerful in those cultural occupations, um, and I think you know. There is, you know, I've done a little bit of work on this um, in-depth work on on television, and, and Dave and I have done a little bit of work on acting. But I think there's a lot more um, to be done on precisely how um, wealth kind of um, provides insulation or gives a particular platform um, uh, in in creative occupations. Um, you know, we often think about this kind of romantic idea of of spontaneous creative talent emerging and being uh, recognized but um but i think you know a fascinating question is the degree to which that is contingent um and perhaps increasingly contingent on parental wealth and how that wealth is is often hidden from public view so i i, I would definitely um urge anybody listening who's interested in that to to, to develop it further um i think another area um you know thinking about lauren rivera's work and thinking perhaps to some extent on some of the work um daniel orison and i have done 
um, it's kind of thinking about how um, culture, cultural matching, um, forms of taste and lifestyle play out in different types of occupational settings. So both, um, you know, I think there's a there's a, there's not a lot of of work on 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 some more technical areas where perhaps you might expect culture to play a different role. I'm thinking here of occupations like engineering, but also I think there's an important question about how this stuff plays out um, in a very different area of the space around social mobility, which is um, in terms of something like downward mobility or, or focusing the lens on, on working class occupations um, is a similar process of cultural matching taking place there um, or do kind of more um, legitimate forms of culture still provide those from advantaged backgrounds with a kind of um, with an advantage there. I think, you know, if you think about that affective energy, right, that Rivera highlights, I think that would show that we might see something very different in gatekeeping situations in working class occupations. I think that would be fascinating to look at. Um, I also think, you know, and this is very much along the lines that you were mentioning, Dave, um, you know, there is a kind of paucity of work, particularly in terms of social mobility destinations or 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 looking at kind of um the labor market um in thinking about intersections intersections between uh, class and gender um there's lots of fantastic work on the kind of overarching experience um of women from working class backgrounds who've been upwardly mobile but um i think there there's room for for more work on on how this plays out um in in terms of um double disadvantages and other kinds of inequality and 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 certainly a lot more work on intersections between race and class in terms of social mobility um i think that's a that's an area that that kind of has to be taken forward in the next few years um so those are just those those are just a few ideas dave i could i could keep going on forever but um you know there's, there's there's time restrictions yeah i mean I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the what i guess we think of as you know the kind of intersectional perspectives on social mobility it's it's interesting if you get you know in in the british literature if you get really deep into um some of the debates around social mobility going back to i guess you know late 70s certainly early 80s you, you know the entry of you know, some, some really quite straightforward points from feminist sociologists of, you, you know, you know social mobility should include women in its analysis, which, which caused all kinds of debates and, and you know, in, in some sense, you know, you could argue problems actually for the, you know, the paradigm of, of understanding social mobility that was dominant at, at the time. And, and I think... You know, we're, we're at a moment where hopefully not just um, gender now, which I think is you know reasonably well established, although still contested within studies of social mobility, but also as, as you've mentioned, Sam, things like race. But actually, I'd flag you know questions around the impact of disability, um, and you know maybe you know it's quite hard to research, but you know. Uh, the more kind of subtle questions of uh, the relationship between, uh, say, sexuality and particular kinds of social mobility. And, and it's interesting thinking um, about, I guess, what we'd call downward social mobility, which hasn't seen as much 
attention in the literature. And, you know, Marne, you, you mentioned this question of wealth, but I'd also, you know, broaden that to um, a really, you know, huge question about maybe comparative research on occupational structures themselves. So thinking about um, some of the stuff that's been done uh, by a couple of European writers on um, hipsters, thinking about things like uh, Richard Sejo's work on uh, kind of high-end, quite classy, uh, you know, cocktail bars, one of the uh, mixologists, you know, um, butchers, you, you know, these kinds of classic working class uh, routine service occupations that in some ways are having their kind of social status um, and, and their position in the occupational hierarchy transformed as a result of downward mobility um, by those with, you know, the wealth to um, support themselves in what are, you know, kind of quite low paying um, areas, but then subsequently can become uh, quite lucrative once you've got entry and a, a particular client base. So, yeah, I mean, we, we've heard wealth, um, downward mobility, the need for intersectionality, and, you know, to, to come back to Marne's final point, and the need for comparisons as well, which I think, you know, all good um, sociology always should pay off with a, if only we could do more, you know, comparisons, particularly um, cross-national work, um, the world would be a more kind of interesting and, and slightly kind of more understandable place, I think. To wrap up, um, I'm just going to do a couple of things. The first thing is to um, get you to answer this, um, I think, quite lovely question that we always ask, which is, what couldn't you let go? What would be the thing you take away from your particular reading? Um, and, and Sam, do you, do you want to go first? What would you, what's like the one thing you'd um, not forget or you'd want to take away from um, Lauren Rivera's paper? Well, I mean, I think it was just a watershed paper. Um, and the reason why I think is that there is, um, and many of the people listening will will be engaging with, a kind of um, a, a voluminous um, sociological literature on cultural consumption and social class, which kind of gets at how those in privileged or dominated class positions um, use culture to demonstrate distinction in a kind of generalised way. Um, but I think what 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 Lauren Rivera kind of started here and opened up a whole stream of literature um, um, was to show that this can also be um, something that can be converted in the labour market. And, you know, she shows it specifically taking place in um, in hiring interviews. But I think others have have then gone on to think about how this might play out through kind of audit study designs or. Uh, as I've done in terms of career progression, so I think it's really through taking that sense of 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 of, of why uh, cultural consumption matters, um, where we have a lot of insight in sociology, and sort of transposing that into another area um, to show why it matters, what's at stake, and I think that is something that I will take away and will stay with me, and why it's such a watershed paper. I mean, Marn, it, it, it's slightly kind of tricky to say, like, what's the one thing you, you take away from your own paper? So, so maybe actually um, I'll, I'll kind of throw you a, a nice, you know, sort of broad question in terms of what might be one thing you take away from maybe our discussion of 
culture inequality and social mobility. Yeah, well, I, th- I think really the the three papers in in, in general, though, uh, really underscore sort of that privilege is both sort of profoundly material, but also profoundly symbolic and, and cultural, and that these these dimensions are, are very important to capture to understand um, the mobility process in itself. But but I think one of the if I can do a very small point that that it was one of the things that really strikes me with Rivera's paper, which I also find brilliant. And I agree that it's a, an instant classic, but, but I think one of the things that's really powerful in, in her article is also um, her finding that, that lifestyles are so consciously sought after among employers and evaluators in, in job hirings in these firms. Because I think often in sociology, we think of these processes uh, as something that operates quite subconsciously. We just somehow seem to know who we get along with. And this knowledge is more sort of practical and habitual than a conscious judgment. So cultural affinities tend to sort of bring people together without necessarily there being this conscious, rational aim for this. And I and I think Rivera's paper really shows that these processes also operate quite consciously and that they serve a very practical and strategic purpose. So on the one hand, uh, it enhances the likelihood that new employees fit in the workplace, that they're less likely to sort of move to another firm. It, It retains employees. But on the other hand, I think it really also goes to show that evaluators are are looking for friends really people that they can hang out with, grab a beer with and so on, which I think makes, I mean, it makes perfectly sense, but I do think that this is a cultural dimension that we maybe forget a bit when studying social mobility. So rather than a formal sorting based on more objective, so to speak, measures of skills and performance, sort of informal ways of doing a job and in particular doing a job together requires other competences that are, that are meant to satisfy other needs or something. So I think uh, I think that's that that the very openly acknowledged way that lifestyles become something that that is sought after as as a uh, as a uh, and and how profound lifestyles and cultural affinity are for for workplace dynamics I think is a is a something that it, I can't let go when when reading these papers it's very profound. On that point, I might as a conclusion be a little bold and posit that in some ways what you've been describing is a sociological project that would unite on the one hand um, a tradition in social mobility that has been interested in, I guess, kind of rational action theory. And then, so, you know, Goldthorpe and the kind of Nuffield tradition, but then on the other hand, um, the Borgesian tradition that's tried to kind of foreground um, culture when it's, been thinking about social mobility and i think both of those projects would be quite comfortable sharing the idea that you know the task of sociology is to in some ways point out how we can observe people acting entirely rationally so you've said you know the need for evaluators to kind of find friends in the room and then think you know oh yes i want to work with this person you know this person will i I don't know get on with me and will deliver my organization's needs and stuff like that but how in doing so, 
those seemingly kind of you know rational uh, actions replicate in some cases quite gross social inequalities whether um, they're on the kind of the level of meaning that there's a class ceiling for those with the wrong accent or with a different set of you know kind of lifestyle choice markers right the way through to outright instances of things like racism misogyny um, discrimination against the disabled and, and this kind of thing and I suppose that sense of you know kind of uncovering these moments of you know people's actions that are implicated in the um, replication of, of inequalities the kind of the big task uh, for future sociological studies in social mobility so that's the end of uh, this week's uh, episode of culture and inequality uh, looking at social mobility um, I've been Dr Dave O'Brien um, I've also been here with uh, Mon Toft and Sam Friedman. Um, and just as a final word, uh, would you like to both say goodbye to the listeners? Goodbye, everyone. Thank you. Good. Mon? Goodbye. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoy listening to this podcast.